The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and the decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or sell or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on, o- on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept, and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. May God bless the reading of his word. If you follow pop culture, then you probably heard this week about Josh uh, Duggar, I think is how he pronounces his name. He was uh, one of the lead actors, um, no, personalities, in a reality TV show on cable. It was called 19 Kids and Counting. And it was about a conservative Christian family and... There are 19 kids, and just, it was showing the culture as a whole. There's some interest in our culture about the kind of people conservative Christians are, and it was a TV show about that sort of thing. Now, the TV show was canceled three or four months ago when it came out that Josh, who's now in his, I think, 20s, I don't remember, Josh, uh, as a kid, as a teenager, had molested some children. And so that created a furor, and they canceled the TV show. And then, you know, he, he came out and, and confessed it, and, and it had been dealt with that many years ago by the church and so forth, by the authorities. Well, then again, this week, something new came out. 
you know, about Ashley Madison, I think, is the name of a website where people used to sign up if they wanted to have affairs. And then it was hacked. And in a wonderful turn of events, the hackers published all the email addresses and information about these people that were having affairs. And it turns out that his name appeared on that. Not such a wonderful turn of events. His name appeared on that list, and so he came out with another confession this week, including uh, pornography addiction and then having, it, having a, been unfaithful to his wife. And he writes, I have been the biggest hypocrite ever. I have brought hurt and a reproach to my family, my close friends, and the fans of our show with the actions that happened first when I was 14 to 15 years old. And now I've rebroken their trust. The last few years, while publicly stating I was fighting against immorality in our country, because his job was as a lobbyist for a conservative organization promoting traditional values. So while publicly I was fighting against immorality in our country, I was hiding my own personal failings. As I'm learning the hard way, we have the freedom to choose our actions, but we don't get to choose the consequences of those actions. I deeply regret all hurt I've caused, so many, by being such a bad example, and I humbly ask for your forgiveness. Please pray for my precious wife and our family during this time. Now, I begin with this, not so much to comment on contemporary news, but as an illustration of the passage we're going to look at this morning. And in fact, Josh Duggar's experience is important in two respects this morning. First of all, it illustrates the Old Testament. And then it challenges the New Testament. And we want to look at both of these pieces separately because the Old Testament describes circumstances involving Israel that Josh Duggar perfectly illustrates. But the New Testament says that's no longer the way God's people are. Things have happened to Jesus. So we're no longer like we used to be in the Old Testament. And so Josh Duggar, on the one hand, illustrates what God's people were like in the Old Testament. On the other hand, he challenges what the New Testament says the people of God are like now. So we turn, first of all, to, chapter, to, to Nehemiah to look at the message here. But, okay. Before we do that, for those of you who are visiting or don't come regularly, so to, this morning is, we're coming really close to the end, only a couple more weeks, of a year-long series Normally, our pattern has been, to, uh, in, in the past years, is to examine one passage in great detail. So we look at the trees. But then, it's really hard to fit the trees where they belong unless you know what the, what the forest looks like. So this last oh, almost 12 months now, we've been doing a survey of the Old Testament to, to figure out what the pattern is, or, or what, the, what the overall arching story of the Old Testament is, so that when we look at the individual passages, we know where they fit in. And it's really, actually, if you take a bird's eye view, the Old Testament is really incredibly easy to understand. Incredibly easy. Shamefully easy. Because for so long, you know, we've gotten caught up in the detail, and, and we haven't paid attention to the overview, and we can easily miss it. So here's the overview of the Old Testament, where we are so far. 
the pattern is the same. There's, there's three cycles, you could say, three cycles in the Old Testament. And every cycle is the same. It starts out in Eden. God is gracious. He creates this beautiful environment. He creates a relationship between himself and these people. And the people have a relationship with themselves, with each other, and they have a relationship with nature. And then God calls for reciprocation. He calls for response. Just like any relationship we're in. The warmer the relationship, the more important the response. And yet, Israel fails to reciprocate. And so, they get exiled. They get thrown out of Eden. Very simple. Grace, a call for reciprocation, a refusal to reciprocate, and exile out of Eden. It happens a second time. God comes back and again gives promises. God offers to reconstruct Eden. Not quite as good as the first version, but still a good version of Eden, more or less, for Abraham and Israel. And he makes these three promises of descendants, land, and that there'll be a blessing to the nations. All the nations will flock to Israel to learn about God. And so he shows grace again. And then he calls for reciprocation. And they fail to reciprocate. And they go into exile. Only this time not exiled from Eden, this time exiled from the land of Palestine. And they get taken off into captivity. That was the second cycle. And now we're in the third cycle, toward the end of the Old Testament. God promised if you repent, I'll bring you back. Grace again, I'll bring you back to the land. And he calls for reciprocation again. And the question we're facing is, as they return from exile, the question is, will they reciprocate? Will they have learned the lesson? They say they've learned the lesson. Will they really have learned the lesson from exile? And will they now reciprocate? Twice they failed. Three times grace, two times failure, two times exile. Now what will happen to Israel? And that's where we are this morning. Now, in the book of Nehemiah itself, the first chapters... Nehemiah builds a city wall to give protection. They've come back from exile. They've built a temple, but the people around them are jealous and hostile, and they're really unprotected. They have no city wall, no fortifications to protect them. So Nehemiah chapters 1 to 7, Nehemiah builds a city wall. And then in 8 to 13, his colleague Ezra addresses the issue of reciprocation. God has been gracious. He fulfilled his promises. He cast us out of the land. He cast us into exile. But now he's brought us back. And he's kept us safe. Now he calls us to reciprocate. And so in chapter 8, oh, by the way, sorry, a little interruption. Two interruptions. If you want to know where we've been thus far, really, I just gave you a three-minute summary of it, and it's the easiest. But if you're a little OCD and you want a little bit more detail, there is a 12-page... Sorry, if you are really genuinely OCD, I apologize for that inappropriate joke. But if you're... (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Uh, There is a brochure, I got a 12-page summary in the bulletin rack in the back, or you can meet me at the door as you leave, and I'll give you a 12-page summary of where we've been. And right now, I'm going to skim through some things in order to focus on the scripture reading. The part that I'm skimming through now, 
God willing and my mind cooperating, I'll have on a, uh, lined up on the devotionals uh, online this week that will cover this in more detail. But here's their challenge. Will they reciprocate? First chapter 8, Ezra calls all of Israel together. They, they've built this wall, they've got safety. Now Ezra calls all the people together. And in chapter 8, he meets with the people as a whole, six hours a day, for seven days, to teach them the Bible. And then, in chapter 9, they review all of their history together, like I just did here about Israel's history. He reviews all their history together, and he shows them the pattern. And, and this, if you really have any doubts about salvation history and, and what we've been doing over this last year, look at Ezra chapter, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. It's all sketched out there. Grace, call for reciprocation, failure, judgment. Grace, call for reciprocation, failure, judgment. He breaks it down into more than three waves. Uh, you know, I, for simplicity's sake, I did, left it to three. But for chapter 8, it goes through the Bible in detail. And then chapter 9, Ezra walks the people through their history. Says, look, this is what we've been. Now we have a chance to start over. Will we be something different now? God has given us grace yet again. Will we make good use of it? And the people in chapter 10 say, we will make good use of it. They commit themselves to the covenant. They commit themselves to obeying God. And if we, this is the first time we're reading the Bible, we get through hundreds of pages and we think, finally, the story's going to turn out well. Finally, it's going to have a good ending. And they make, and this is really important to catch up what's going on in that reading. You know, that reading, if you just read through it casually, we're not used to reading the Old Testament. It was written over a thousand years ago. We're not used to how they write. We're not used to the story, the backstory. You know, you could read that or listen to Terry's reading and think, why are we ever reading this? What's the point? Well, there's a hugely significant point going on here. Because in chapter 10, they make three special commitments to God. And I'll show you those commitments. I'll take you back through the chapter 10, the scripture reading that Terry read. They make three special commitments to God. The first commitment they make is not to engage in mixed marriage. Oh, by the way, why these three commitments? Because in their history, when God called them to reciprocate, these were three things he asked of them, and three ways they violated his his commands, three ways that they turned away from him. So they said, we're starting over. We're not going to do this again. We're going to follow God. And the first thing, chapter 10, verse 30, we promised not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us. We promised not to take their daughters in marriage for our sons. Now, the problem with mixed marriage is this. If one of you worships Jehovah and the other worships the Canaanite deities, what are you going to do? You've got a family unit. Well, the obvious solution is you worship Jehovah and the Canaanite deities. And that's what Israel had always done. And God said, no. Just like when you're married and have an opportunity to have an affair, you say, no. This is my relationship. And God says, no, 
This is our relationship. And so they made a promise. We won't worship other gods, and to ensure that we don't, we won't marry people that do worship other gods. That's their first commitment. Their second commitment is that they'll worship God on the Sabbath. You know, consider this date night writ large. You know, basically God said, set aside one day a week, both for your own sake and for the sake of our relationship, where you rest up, you don't work, and you spend the day with me. And they said, we will obey the Sabbath for the first time ever. We will now obey the Sabbath. And then the third commitment they made was to the temple. So here's the commitment to the Sabbath. Chapter 10, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, another Sabbath, we will forego working the land. We will cancel all debts. We will obey the Sabbath. And then most of what Terry read is about the temple. Verses 32 to 39. They read through all sorts of details that seem to us meaningless. But it culminates, reaches the pinnacle in chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, how hard is this really? God created the world and gave them a beautiful place to live. When they were captured by the slaves, by the Egyptians, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and gave them a whole territory, a whole land for themselves. When they were captured by another superpower and dragged off into exile, God brought them back. And what does God ask of them? Don't engage in, don't marry people of a different faith. Worship on the Sabbath and respect the temple. It's not really that long a list. You know, we read the Old Testament and think so many laws, so many rules, so hard to live. No, it's not that hard. Don't marry somebody of a different faith. Worship on the Sabbath and don't work. And respect the temple. And they said, this, we'll do it. This time we really mean it. We will really do it this time. Now, if you've been here before or know the story of Nehemiah, you'll know that he was actually, while he was a Jew, he was actually a foreign official. He was an official in a foreign government. He was a very high-ranking official in the Persian government. He only came back to Palestine to help him out for a while. His, the, the emperor had to give him permission to leave, and the emperor said, well, look, when are you coming back? So eventually, Nehemiah gets this all set up, and then he has Ezra lead them in this covenant commitment. As Nehemiah hears all this, they're not going to marry people of other faith. They are going to obey the Sabbath. They're going to respect God in his temple. And Nehemiah thinks, okay, it's settled now. I can go back and, and do my real job. So Nehemiah goes back to Persia and resumes his duties. Now, what do you suppose happened? Chapter 13 we get this same, we get Nehemiah, chapter 13, Nehemiah comes back to Palestine for a visit, just a checkup. How are these people doing? You know, they, they, were, they were struggling without me. I got everything cleaned up. How are they doing now? And he comes back. What's the first thing he finds? And notice, the author is drawing our attention to this because now they're going to come in reverse order. This is what's in, in 
biblical scholarship is called a chiasm. After the Greek letter chi, never mind, it's an X. Reversed order. ABC, now it's going to come CBA. So ABC, they made three commitments. Mixed marriage, Sabbath, temple. Now CBA, they're going to, he's going to review those commitments. How are they doing? What's the first thing Nehemiah finds in chapter 13? He goes into the temple... And then this, they had this big room where they're supposed to store. They're supposed to store the tithes. They're supposed to store all the equipment they use for worshiping God. And, you know, this big room with a store room for all the stuff. And he goes into the temple, and what does he find? They're not storing people's donations anymore. They're not storing equipment for worship anymore. The, the high priest, the fellow who's in charge of the temple, the fellow who should be leading the people in, in holiness, he emptied that room out. All the stuff that's supposed to be stored there is nowhere to be found. And not only did he empty that room out, he gave that room over to one of their enemies to use. People who weren't even supposed to be worshipping in the temple now have an office in the temple. Nehemiah says, what is this? And then, Chapter 13. Oh, so Nehemiah says this. Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. Now, he was closely associated with Tobiah, one of our enemies. And he had provided Tobiah a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes for the people, the tithes of grain and the new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites and the musicians and the gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priest. He'd empty the room and allow Tobiah to take over. And then he found, he asked, what about the Sabbath? And in, 13, in verses 15 to 22, he finds out that the Jews are buying and selling things from their uh, Canaanite neighbors on the Sabbath. The Jews are working on the Sabbath. We read in verse 15, In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses. They were making wine on the Sabbath. Now, the wine part was fine, but not making it on the Sabbath. You make it on the day before. And bringing in grain. They were loading it on the donkeys, uh, together with wine and grapes and figs. They weren't worshipping. They were working on the Sabbath. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And what about marriage? In those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And in fact, not only had they intermarried with people that didn't worship God, their children weren't able to speak the Jewish language anymore. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't even know how to speak the language of Judah. So, Here's the lesson of Nehemiah. All in a nutshell, they made three basic simple promises to reciprocate God's love and grace. They made three basic promises, and what did they do? They broke them all. Now, you see how Josh Duggar illustrates that. And this is... I wouldn't use him as an example. You don't beat a guy that's fallen. I mean, you could talk about 
many of other examples, but this kind of a case illustrates. This is exactly what they were doing. They made some fundamental basic commitments to God, and they violated him. Now, what's the deeper message of Nehemiah, or the deeper message of the whole of the Old Testament? You see, Nehemiah here, 8 to 13, reveals for us the whole message of the whole Old Testament. Just another example of this entire message that sweeps from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. The message is this. God is incredibly gracious to his people. And he asks for small response. And they don't give it. The message of the Old Testament is that none of this is enough. God being kind to his people, it's not enough. Them having the Bible and and going six hours a day for teaching from the Bible, it's not enough. Them having the temple and the presence of God, it's not enough. Them having worship and festivals and teaching Priests, sacrifice, it's not enough. They're so fundamentally flawed that even with all these things, they keep doing the same stuff over and over again. And this is coming right to the end of biblical history that we have in the Old Testament. And still, the third wave, the end of the third wave of this, and still they haven't got it. So Josh Duggar kind of illustrates the point that Nehemiah is making. The point that Nehemiah is making as the culmination, as the conclusion of the whole Old Testament. The point that the whole Old Testament is making. Human beings are deeply loved by God, but so fundamentally flawed that they can't love God in response. Now that's the Old Testament. And I want to show you this morning again, we've talked about this before, but how that ties in with the New Testament. The Old Testament is a mix of good news and bad news. The good news is God is gracious. The bad news is God's people never reciprocate. The New Testament takes a much different view of this. Because in the New Testament, we see that a threefold message. The, the promise of the New Testament is that all of this is different now. This is what they were like in the Old Testament. This is not what the people of God are like in the New Testament. Instead, you know, here's the human problem. No amount of Bible, no amount of grace, no amount of sin, no amount of repentance, no amount of forgiveness, uh, no amount of resolve to do better will make any difference. That's the human problem according to the Old Testament. Here's the solution in the New Testament. Jesus is the solution. And now you all know this. What a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus is only part of the solution. But here's what we have about Jesus as the solution. One example, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. On the cross, Christ took our sin. He died for our sin so that we don't have to. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. We know that solution well as evangelicals. But that's only one piece of the solution. The second piece of the solution is the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus die for us? Not simply to forgive our sins. Galatians chapter 3, 14. He redeemed us. Why? Not just so that we can go to heaven. Not just so our sins are forgiven. He redeemed us to show that blessing 
given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. What's that blessing that God promised Abraham? He redeemed us so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And here's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit is not healing or tongues or prophecy. No, no, no. The Old Testament, the promise of the Holy Spirit was this. The promise to Ezekiel was this. You know, as Ezekiel looked back in the history of Israel, this commitment and failure, this commitment and failure, Ezekiel promised, you know, one day, one day in the future, God's going to come. And he's not going to tell you what to do in the Bible. Because he's already done that. One day, God's going to change you from the inside. The spirit, the, spirit, the, the, the power, the, the inner essence which drives God. God's going to take that inner essence from himself and put it in each of us. So that now, we won't simply know what to do. We will actually do it. Now our bias will not be towards sin. Our bias will be toward holiness. Now our bias won't be toward breaking the covenant commitments. Our bias will be toward fulfilling those covenant commitments. That's the promise of Galatians chapter 3.14. And so in Galatians 5.16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. He's not saying these are the things you must do if you're a Christian. He's saying these are the things that the Holy Spirit will do in you if you're a Christian. Inner transformation, no longer outer command. Now, here is where Josh Duggar does not illustrate. Here is where he challenges and so many other spectacular failures challenge the New Testament. Because the New Testament tells us Jesus dies for our sin, and then Jesus transforms us by his Spirit so we're no longer sinners. So what do you do with this? I mean, the Old Testament is a problem. We're inwardly flawed and broken and sinful. The New Testament says, no, we're not that way anymore, and that's an even bigger problem. Because, you know, we do see it. And the question becomes, what do you do with this? Now, Paul realizes that we're already in this age. We're not yet at its fulfillment. Paul realizes that already these things are occurring, but not yet, they haven't yet fully taken hold. And so in Galatians itself, he offers one more prescription, and that's this. Hello? He does offer one more. He turns to the community. Galatians chapter 6, 1 to 2. After telling them that you don't have to live like this anymore because of the Spirit, Galatians 6, 1 to 2, he says, Brothers and sisters, if any of you is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of the Spirit. We're not there yet. We're in a process of being transformed by the Spirit. And he says, in this process, this is why he gives us community. This is why we have small groups. This is why in our small groups, we don't just talk about our jobs and the weather. We talk about Jesus and, and what our struggles are in our lives, obeying him. This is why we have a group like Real in this congregation 
where people who are beset by addictions can go someplace and have accountability and encouragement. This is why we live together in a way that's moderately transparent and needs to grow more transparent. Because God has given us not just Jesus to die for our sins, and not just the Spirit to transform us, but the community to help us walk in this path of transformation. For that to happen, we have to talk plainly about what God is doing in our lives and where we're still struggling. That is what Josh Duggar didn't do. It's the secret sin that will interfere with God's promises and his plans for the future. It doesn't have to be this way. Because Christ has not only died for our sin, Christ has given us the spirit that transforms us and leads us a new path of holiness. We can now reciprocate God's grace through worship and through obedience. Let's help each other to do this. Let's pray together. Father, we take hold of these promises, both that Christ died for those sins, but also that the Spirit transforms us so that we can rise above them. We ask that this might be true of our lives together and of our community. In Jesus' name, amen.